Hello and welcome to Book Club, uh, episode number 30-something yet again. I can't remember which one it is, but I know it's in the 30s. Mike, how are you? <laughs> yeah, not bad. Yeah. I was laughing because I was pulling a funny face before we started filming. <laughs> and I pulled a funny face before Just we started genuinely filming. genuinely being an idiot. Pretty puerile, if I'm honest. But it's that kind of humour that gets I'm us through the day. the last bit of this book. The final furlong before yes. the author joins us on the show. Now, I've got to say, we have actually filmed that bit in advance, the author joining us on the yeah, show. Yeah, it just fell that way. Normally, we went with Keith no, Rosen. No, but, but I was going to say, do you know what's interesting is, Anthony Anarino added a lot to this book for me. It's pretty cool when you can get the author to talk no, you through the book. No, the point is, I wish I'd had that interview with him first, because actually, we're on chapters 10, 11, 12 today. I think they're pretty boring, really, to be honest. <laughs> that's say what I wrote it like that's, you see that's it. That's what I wrote in a book I wrote. This is pretty boring, but having met Anthony Anarino, I like them more now. Well, he he brought some real colour to the conversation, didn't he? Yeah, very much so. So do look out for that, listeners. Do us a favour if you like what you're hearing or like what you're watching. Hit the like, hit the share button. Well, do you know, Jonathan, one of the um, YouTubers that I watch, I can't remember his name now, Johnny something, um, he releases a code during his show... Yeah. That if you then remember the code and hit like, he then gives you a prize. We could do that, couldn't we? Smart. I thought it was a really smart thing to do. Something like one in five people that likes likes it with the code gets a prize. And it was a pretty decent prize. You know, it was like a copy of his book or something like that. We could do that, couldn't we? Mm -hmm. Anyway, back to the book. Right. I'll think about that. All right. So what we've got is we're in the final furlong. We're in the final three chapters. I actually... And let's just be clear, let's just go over what the book is again, just one more time. One more time, so as is, Daft Punk would the, say. The book is about um, winning business from a competitor where your product is very similar, if not the same as your competitor, and where Anna Reno is saying it's a zero-sum game, i.e. I lose, win, I you win. lose. That's what this book is about. And I think that whilst we all want to talk about the fact that we've got the world's most unique product, which we'll probably have once the client realises it, this is very, very, um, this is a well-discussed topic on that subject. Because a lot of the other books just talk about individually positioning solutions, actually. Whereas Anna Reno talks about competing with somebody whose product is similar to your own. Yeah. And there isn't enough about that. There's not enough conversation about that. Not in the, just the general market. No. Uh, well not enough about it in the general market and not enough you know often when we talk to candidates and i'll ask them to give me a case study of a deal they've won they won it because their solution was the best yep full stop that's it it's very rare i get a good case study where they'll say well this is how i outwitted the competition so I get it quite a lot actually because i do a lot of work in the erp research where it's more crowded see where you've got 40 sapb1 partners as an example yeah as an example you know you've got nine epic or nine partners you've got 28 uh, Microsoft division partners, etc., etc. And because it's as crowded, and the nature of nearly all of the deals in that market. Well, you like my are, salespeople. Yes, I love it when you go on holiday. Yes, because you go, wow, dealing with some real sales guys. Yeah, I love it when you go on holiday and I run your desk. Mm. Um, so, chapter ten: becoming a trusted advisor and consultative salesperson. Now, I'm sure we've probably mentioned on the show over the last few weeks how nervous we are about the phrase trusted advisor yes yes we've read the book haven't we one of our previous uh the first books. one the pilot 
Without the pilot, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, I don't like the term trusted advisor. I think it's a weak term that weak salespeople use without really necessarily understanding its meaning. My issue is none of them have read the book. I, I, I would, any candidate that wants to come to the phone or any salesperson that wants to ring me and say, I'm a trusted advisor, I've read the book and I know what a trusted advisor really is. Oh yeah, you'd be happy with that. I'm down with that. But actually the phrase trusted advisor has become part of the common popular vernacular in the same way that Hoover did, you know, do you know what I mean? I'm going to Hoover the floor. Yes, I agree. Absolutely. I agree. So I think about what I thought about this chapter is I thought it was boring. Um, <laughs> I thought the book, the trusted advisor was better. All right. A couple of things I wanted to pick out on it. There's some very good bits in it. The opening paragraph, um, I thought was really useful. And I thought there was a lot to talk about in here. It says, if you listen to salespeople talk about how they want to sell without fail, you'll hear the words, consultative and trusted advisor. If you press them to describe what makes one's approach consultative, many who use this word will have a tough time describing what exactly would make them consultative. In most cases, when what that person means by consultative is they don't want to be anything that harkens back to the days of aggressive, high pressure, manipulative sales practices, in that their definition would be correct, but incomplete. So there's a couple of things I wanted to talk about here. This, this, I, I think that's right. Oh, 100%. It couldn't be more right. People refer to themselves as trust advisors because they're afraid of what their mates will think if they say, I'm a bloody salesman. Mm, um, but this hearkening back to the days of aggressive, high pressure, manipulative sales practices, I think the words aggressive, I think the words high pressure and the words manipulative are much, much maligned, Mike. Yeah, I mean... I can see why you, they're maligned, because they're misused yes. and misunderstood. You as an individual are yeah, very yeah. fond of understanding how aggressive a candidate or a salesperson is. I am for the match. I'm yes. for the match. It's interesting, years ago, I placed this guy and the client, I hope he listens at Grimbury, I said, what, it was a sales management role. I said, what do you want to hire you? He said, I want to hire Satan in a suit. Satan in a suit. I placed Satan in a suit. Guess what? Satan and Stu is still there. Doing a really good He's job. He's been there six years. They're a big company. He's the best performing team. And guess what? Actually, if you meet him, he's a lovely man. But he's an aggressive... I see what he does. I see what he does. He, he's aggressive. Oh, no. He's perceived to be aggressive because he tells people the truth at the right time. But is he, an, is he aggressive with people or is he no. aggressive in his pursuit in his of pursuit, victory? In his pursuit. He would say to a client... Actually, Mr. Client, I don't agree with that. You're doing the wrong thing there. He's a, and I think so he's think assertive. Aggressive. Yeah, but I think people think that's aggressive. He's not. He Correct. Just tells them as it is. Correct. Him, he's a really calm man. And I, I think that this whole thing about being a consultative salesperson, I actually think the whole thing about being a trusted advisor, I think it's gone too bloody far, Mike. Well, the, t the, the, the key of trusted advisor is actually in the word trusted. It's trust and it's telling the truth. Yes. That's where that word is derived yeah, from. Yeah, look at the linguistic. And I think a lot of people say I'm a trusted advisor, but they lie. And they lie is how Dave Shields used to say it, which he was right. They lie by not telling the truth. Uh, well, They're not saying to their client, that is the wrong thing to do. Hard work is t hard work is being honest. That's the truth, isn't it? Yeah. That's the truth. The truth is you can spend half as much money, but you are wasting your money. And actually all these people, oh, it's aggressive. No, it's not. It's just it's honest. The truth. I, am, I am being a truth. They're not mealy mouthed. They don't mince their words. They just say, listen, here's where you're at. 
you can do that, but that would be a daft thing to do, and this is why. We've got it with a client at the minute. I know he's going to get really angry. I have, I have told him, if you do that, you will not hire that candidate. That is the wrong thing to do. He's going to do it, not hire the candidate. But that's what makes you the trusted advisor. Oh, it will be when he knows I'm right second time around. Correct. But that's what makes you the trusted advisor. And that's whereas, what this guy's referring to, actually. Whereas, actually, yes. But that's, you have to be aggressive with him. You've got to tell him, don't do that. You will fail. But I, I think well, that's the, my point. People think that's been aggressive. I don't think it is. It's being the truth. But that's the point that Anarino's making. Yeah. Is he's saying that, that we think that being aggressive is shouting at people. That's what he's saying. That's not shouting at people. Okay. And what about high pressure? Mm, I guess the same point, isn't it? I think at some point, sometimes, a salesman has to put a customer under pressure to do a deal. Or, or to take action of some kind. Yes. I need to be in that room with you. And I'd be very that. nervous of a salesperson who was truly uncomfortable with using pressure in the right situation at the right time in order to get a deal done. Depends how you define pressure, doesn't it? Because phoning the same prospect five times a day is not pressure. <laughs> you, not pressure. you are talking to a guy who in his youth had a, had the cops called on him for yeah, the amount of times he called that, one that prospect in one day. Pressure. If you go back to your Miller-Hyman paradigm, Miller-Hyman would say, if you took all the boxes, it creates its own pressure. Correct. And it just closes naturally. Correct. That's what I mean about pressure. I don't mean shouting at people. And what about this word manipulative? I think, personally, I think that salespeople shouldn't lie. I don't think they should lie. I think they should tell the truth. Correct. But I do think that the good salespeople that I have met choose to use the information they have been given wisely. In such a way that the outcome is theirs. Correct. And so I'm very nervous, and, and, and it, for me, this is a much wider philosophical conversation about this whole trusted advisor thing, because people mistake it and hide behind they it. They do, but let's get back to the review of the book. How well do you think Anarino covers it in this chapter? Well, I mean, we're not necessarily here to review the book. What we're here to do is to talk about the talking points in it, uh, 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 think, as, as a reading I, group. I think, that, I think there's a bit of book review here. You know, the, no, let, me, let me rephrase the question then, Jonathan. You are... 22, uh, I give you a book to read. This chapter is on becoming a trusted advisor and consultative salesperson. If you follow what Anna Reno says, will it make you a good salesperson? I guess. I think it do. I thought it was a bit boring, but I think what he's saying is right. So what's, what, what, serving your client, controlling the process? Oh, this is an interesting bit. He's put, if conflict is present, collaboration is possible. I sort of reworded that. I always think to myself, that the prospect to whom you're selling needs to be in some form of change or flux. Go on, what do you mean? Uh, well, I think this is, you know, the other way of looking at it is that um, if you're disagreeing with your client, at least you're getting an emotion of some kind. You're getting something out of the client. You've got to get some feedback of some kind, haven't you? Because actually, when somebody objects to you, are they objecting to you or are they searching for more information? They're searching yep. for more information. I think that's what Anarino is making reference to, that if somebody's disagreeing with you, they're actually asking you for more information on the point that you're talking to them about. Yeah, so he breaks, the, the chapter breaks down into how to gain the ability to advise. And then he breaks that down into no strategic outcomes that you create, serve your client and control the process. Uh, and he points out the first place you're going to run into conflict is asking your dream client for their time and exploring change. And he actually has a really lovely way of sort of quite elegantly 
getting the client to look at it in a different way, which is we're going to explore some ideas rather than necessarily talk about change. I underline that by suggesting that you're simply exploring ideas you reduce their need to defend. Like yeah, that. yeah, I liked that. Um, and then he talks about creating a collaborative approach, which I quite like. So what he's saying is, you know, one of the points he makes is in collaboration is he's really pointing out just because you've been there a million times and you're selling the same thing to companies who are very similar. Mm. He talks a lot there about really making sure that you really learn about every individual client and collaborate with every individual client there. Okay. So that's great stuff. I really liked that. Uh, so I, I would recommend that part of the chapter. It gets read. And then it, the bit I really liked was this thing on impartiality. Did you put, if you want to be consultative, you have to be impartial? Did I put that? Oh, that's what I underlined. I like that. Yeah, you do. You have to be cool and impartial. But more than that, it's about qualifying deals. Yes, if they're well qualified, you can be impartial. Because you can't be consultative if all you want to do is do a deal. No, you can't. But if they're well qualified, it suits you anyway. Correct. So actually, the point I made, I wrote next to it in my notes was, and I think that's the whole dichotomy of being a consultative salesperson is when you've got one and a half million pound, two million pound number to hit. Mm. At some point, actually, you've got to hit that number. But actually, the real trick to being a consultative salesperson is being able to actually say, do you know what? It ain't quite the right business for us right now, Mr. Customer. Yes, that initial qualification is... And being able to walk away and saying, this isn't the business that's quite right for us and we're not quite the right supplier do, do for you. Do you know what's interesting? Ironically, is often when you do that, the clients chase after you. Do you know what's interesting is I've put here, you, if you want to be consultative, you have to be impartial. What I have found is that now, you know, however long we've been going, 10, 11 years, I've got clients who are phoning me up saying, listen, Mike, about three years ago, I tried to brief you, but you didn't want the brief. Yeah. I've got a business that I want to talk to you about now because you know at that particular moment you were you gave them impartial advice yeah or quite often we get clients I think who were once a candidate looking for a role and you're very honest with them and said actually I don't think we can help you for this reason or I think you're looking for a bit too much money or I don't think your skill set's right for that or whatever and then those clients come back to you yes they do so uh, often at times when you most need a, a result for the day well, it's interesting, isn't it? You know, I, we've got a, um, uh, a client, touch wood and all those superstitious things, starting a week today. That, cl that client, maybe, I can't remember, six months, a year ago, something like that, he was one of many who was looking for a role who I kept in touch with out of nothing other than my respect for him as a person. What, during the darkest depths of the recession? Yeah. Yeah. Because he was a man who needed help. Advised, supported, help helped. There was one particular company, it was a big reseller, he said, can you get me into that? I said, I can't get you into that. It's HR driven. This is the name of the person you need to speak to. You need to email in, reference me if you want. I don't care. That's impartiality. And guess what? Hopefully, don't say I won't, but hopefully you know, he's going to start a job a week on Monday. And that's what we're talking about here. But your point is, well, that's all right, Mike, because it's worked out for you now. But over long ago, it was we could have done with that revenue. And there's a balance between those two parts, I think. What, to be truly impartial in your advice? yeah. 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 Absolutely. And and when, when there is a target involved and best part of £100,000 worth of commission perhaps in the pot, can you really be impartial? I agree completely. I, I'm not convinced the salesman can. 
it's a it's a debate that could last forever because i think that because i'll tell you what would happen right is if as a salesperson all you ever were was completely impartial it'd be like the tortoise of the hair so let's say i'm completely impartial you're completely um, partial partial yeah all i i'm mr coin operated i'll do anything to hit my number so what's going to happen right if you're going to close 100 grand of business today 100 grand of business next year 100 grand of business year after 100 grand of business year after sounds all right what this. i'm going to do is i'm going to close nothing this year nothing next year <laughs> 20 grand next year but you know when there's a the big million pounder out there in 10 years time someone's going to trust have, me so you much have, you have no chance i'm going to nail you you have no yeah chance you're going to nail me impartial. and i've been impartial all the way and i think impartiality builds up your reputation of integrity over a longer period of time than most yeah, of our candidates are, are afforded to have yes that's a great point they're not allowed to have the time and often actually the ones who've had the great careers often have had the time to mm. build mm. that personal equity mm. in their impartiality mm. that's exactly what happens and they become known by their market and by people in the market as this guy's a straight shooter and that's where we're at now because yes we've got people coming to us now sweat equity i think they call it we like. were absolutely dead straight 11 years ago yes and so i said, tell you what actually i'm recruiting i am gonna hire you you know we, we the client phoned me last week and they are a division of a very big software company i had a client got bought by a big software company when they got bought by a big software company that client took everything in-house which is fair enough and the in-house recruiter said how are we going to work this out mike i said we're not really i said we're at odds with each other you, you know you don't want the service i offer that and, that and that's how it is no hard feeling i'm going to leave you to it where did, did i take a brief off last week Didn't. Uh, no no it was the friend of the internal recruiter right who did she refer me yeah and that's how it works of course it does sweat equity sweat equity i think they call it we're here now anyway, yeah. waffled on justifying the delta what do you yeah. think of that? A big part of this inability of the sales... Yeah, I just can't read my writing. <laughs> <laughs> Here you go. One of the biggest mistakes salespeople and sales organisations make is allowing their clients to underinvest in the results they need. A big, big part of this is the inability of the salesperson to justify the delta between what the client is currently investing in and what they need to spend. Doing so requires some work and a lot of confidence. Can I tell you what, what I wrote down here, sure my notes is... Very often, a client will, a new prospect will say to us, what do you charge? We'll say we charge, you know, five quid for argument's sake. Client will go, I want to do it for three pounds. And yeah. I say, well, you know, there's two things that can happen here. Either A, I don't make a profit, because I've got to make a profit. And if I don't make a profit, I'm not interested. Or B, I can just remove a bit of my service. Which bit do you want me to take out? Which bit should I take out? And actually, when you word it like that with the clients, they're always all right with it. And it surprises yeah, me. Yeah, which bit don't you want? It surprises me that some of our clients, I would hope anyway, some of our clients turn around to Which some of Which module don't you want, Mr. Customer? Yeah, yeah. What about finance? It's not important in ERP. Let's just use that. <laughs> you will take the financial module out. <laughs> what about the HR module? No, you won't need so that. So the point here about justifying the delta, I mean, it's surprised they didn't put it, is about being honest, I think. It's That's two things. It costs, and then we've got to make a profit. It's two things. I'll tell you what's been a real surpriser for, for me has been... Uh, we created that web calculator for uh, estimate cost of a bad hire, yeah, cost of a bad hire like an ROI calculator. I saw that. I saw, I saw that. that yeah. <laughs> I saw that thing you spent a whole day working on. Um, but it, we created it. What surprised me is 
we've not really pushed it out, but it's created leads mm. because it immediately has created a delta. Well, it allows people to see what their delta is. And there, people and it, know there's a delta there. They just don't know how much it is. Yeah. And it's created leads where literally we're scratching our heads going, where the hell's that lead come from? But it's obviously out there. Somebody's seen it on SEO, looked at it and, and come back. And uh, often I was, I was talking to a candidate this morning, actually, really good one. He's got a final interview tomorrow. Um, and the client's asked him to prepare some case studies. And he showed me the case study mm. that he did. And what was brilliant was how he walked he how he walked me through the return on investment model that he used mm. for the solution and all the key elements that it solved and I, and actually if you looked at how he justified his delta you could see exactly why he got the deal cool yeah uh, so i get that i think that's really important and then the final bit they talk about is creating value uh, and and i think the final quote of the chapter in the red ocean, it pays to be the great white shark. The great white rules the red ocean. To be consultative and a trusted advisor, you need to create more value than anyone else by being super consultative, being collaborative while controlling the process, being impartial and justifying the delta between your solution and the existing partner. All of these differentiating skills and attributes and help build executive presence. The subject of the next chapter is an intangible that allows your dream client to perceive an extreme difference between you and the existing partner. And this was my favourite chapter, actually. Do you know, I agree. It's a very, very good chapter, I thought. Yeah. What did you like about it? I thought I liked about it. I thought it was very accurate. So it's chapter 11, developing an ex executive presence. And, you know, I'm, I'm a man of few words, as you know. And, and the basic what it's saying is your client should recognise you as a peer because then you can offer them all of those things that we've talked about in the previous 10 chapters. Yep. You should be a peer in the room with your client. An equal. An equal, yeah. And I just think I can just give you so many million examples of, of why that's right. Now, we've employed people here in the past and I, and, it, and it's weird that you know, I'm not a very big person. I'm only about five foot eight. But I look at some of these people that have employed that have been quite tall people, you know, six foot. And then four months into the role, they look like they're five foot eight. They look like little men. They look like little people. I just, you know, it, it's, it, it's a weird thing, isn't it? And I think to myself, the clients often, they must just subconsciously sense it when they're not speaking to an equal and then they don't listen to what that person's saying and they don't value it they don't take your um where your value statement is they don't take your consultation and then guess what because they don't take your consultation then you are an aggressive manipulator and i think this chapter underpins chapter 10 actually when i was younger and i first came into recruitment and I was 25, I never quite understood when a client said to me, I need someone with a few more grey hairs. Mm. I used to just sit there thinking, you ageist bastard. What's wrong with young people? I never got it. But as I've got a bit more grown up, what I realised is it wasn't necessarily the grey hairs they were looking for. It was executive presence. Yes, that's was, probably because the client didn't vociferate it properly. Correct. They were looking for executive presence. And and the phrase that often clients use when they instruct us is gravitas, isn't it, in a salesperson? Yes, yes. And actually, gravitas can be attained at any stage in your career. I think it's attained through knowledge. 
knowledge and desire to get it. Mm, I agree. You've got to want to get it, though. And to get it without experience requires a boatload of graft. Graft or time? Yeah. Time served. Time, t- time served, i.e., in Malcolm Gladwell terms, your 10,000 hours. Yes, it's very overused that nowadays, but it's very true. Or, alternatively, you actually have to get make a proactive, conscious decision to say, I'm going to develop my executive presence, I'm going to read, I'm going to learn. Nobody will know more about this market than me. Well, the next point on this is develop an informed opinion and a point of view. Yeah. Clients want your point of view. They want you to have an opinion. They want you to be somebody that walks in there that tells them something they didn't know. And I think in the current information age, it's now more incumbent than ever that you've got to do that because they can get plenty of information out online. Well, what's more important now is the human filter on the information. Yes. They need to know what that information means. So, you know, we've got this cracking statistic at the minute, which is UK employment is at the highest rate it's ever been at. But so what? Yeah. What does that that mean to me as an employer, Mike? Yeah. How does that affect me? That's the important thing. Correct. And And every salesman in every market's got a statistic like that. Yes. Of course they have, 100%. Absolutely. So here we are, don't be conflict averse, you know, absolutely, you know, like that. Well, this comes back to the point about aggression, assertion. Mm. And then the next point, his next chapter is be a, be a combative diplomat. And I, I, you know, unlike me, I underlined an awful lot in this. It's obviously covered well in the challenge yourself. Clearly. Hey, he, most executives you encounter are likely to be extraordinarily comfortable with conflict. Where have you read that? Don't be conflict averse. It's in part how they ended up in their position. This can sometimes make them difficult characters. Mm. Yeah, but it's, it's absolutely true, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. The thing to, to bear in mind with this is, is that, it's like I said a minute ago about, about chapter 10, about, um, about people disagreeing with you. They're not disagreeing with you in terms of uh, like you do in the playground when you're a kid. <laughs> They're actually entering into a conversation yeah. where they want your input back. And often, actually... You know, Johnny, your fees are too high. Really? Is that them telling me your fees are too high, or are they actually asking you to justify your fees? Definitely the second. Uh, well, I, I always thought, you know, uh, it's all they're all objections and objections are requests for more information. But I think people forget that. I think the modern era of salesperson... Yeah. I think what happens is they avoid it, then they manipulate or become aggressive. The very few become aggressive. Yes, well, there's not enough. There's not enough. Yeah, but actually, objections—they're just a request for more information. Customer wants to know a bit more, don't they? Mm. And sometimes the most combative customers—they're the ones worth hanging in there with, because mm. actually everyone else is wussing out, and that, and when you get there, you're the only guy in the room. Always, yeah, yeah, absolutely, always. So be a combat, a combative, a combative diplomat. An executive presence is the ability to challenge the status quo. Yeah. I think that's what our clients look to us for. Yeah. That's why you're sat there. Yeah. Why so, should we do it differently? This is why. This is why. You don't even have to be right. You just have to have a, uh, a an opinion of some kind. An opinion that sounds cogent. Yeah, that's not stupid. Yes. Absolutely. Talk about failure. Yes, like that. Very pragmatic. I talk about that a lot with our clients when we're getting into a recruitment phase. When I'm taking a brief from a client now, I don't know if you ever hear me, but I say, da, 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 this is what we'll do, this is why you'll fail. Yeah. And the clients go, what do you mean? I say, well, you need to know why you'll fail. 
you know, our conversion ratio from placement, from brief to placement, pretty good, but it's still 50%. Yeah. It's having the courage to say, listen, it might not work out this. And this is why. This might be, in, the implementation might not go as we planned. Yeah. And, and here's what we're going to do when it happens. He's right. But like I said, about but that, that gives you executive presence hiding from objections that you know are coming up or hiding from objections that you know somewhere in the back of the customer's mind when you damn well know it's in the customer's mind that is weak yeah saying to the customer listen you're probably worried about about what happens if we mess up the implementation aren't you now in fairness to uh, yeah i am yeah. the wolf of wall street he had his pendulum didn't he just remind me about his pendulum so his pendulum was it's something like plus three to minus three uh, and that the customer swings emotionally in between the two. Swings emotionally. And what the wolf said was, don't be afraid if the customer swings away from you emotionally because then you can talk about what his fear of failure is. Right. And the wolf's right. <laughs> That's still your favourite book, isn't it? Uh, yeah, yeah, it is. I, I, <laughs> I, I just like the fact he has such a unique idea. I thought, fair play to you, man. And then the final section of this chapter was, be a peer, not an order taker. Yeah, I think it's like the chapter I just thought, yeah, you're right. When I said it was my favourite chapter, by the way, I'm mistaken it with chapter 12, which was my favourite chapter. I oh, really? You like, so I didn't like chapter 12, and I didn't like chapter 12 because I felt it was incongruent. Did you? Yeah. Why do I need a book about, why do I need a chapter about keeping customers in a book about winning new ones? Well, you've just been pedantic. The question is whether the actual content of the chapter is any good. But I didn't like it in context. Well, presumably you didn't read it then. Well, of course I read it. <laughs> but, but I... <laughs> But my issue was... So chapter 12 is all about you've won a client, how do you keep them? Yeah, how, it's entitled How to Build a Wall of Fire Around Your Clients. So go on, you talk about it, because I, I got pissy with it. I was like, oh, come on, I don't want to read a book about account management. No, I mean, it wasn't I'm a new business it wasn't, hunter. It, it wasn't a very long chapter. No, it wasn't. You know, let's get it right. It was, it was 11 pages long. And I think, you know, there's the point which is you've won this client, you may as well try and keep them. I think it would have been wrong for him not to put, to put in there. I think the other part that's very interesting is, and I flick through it a little bit, is he talks about adding new value. So you have to create new value proactively. On a consistent basis. Yes. Which is why so many of our clients have got customer success managers now. This is like oh, a, whole, yeah, a whole new section of our industry that's just emerged in the last two, three years. Customer success. Correct. Correct. And actually, my point was, whilst I was reading it, Customer success is not the job of a new business salesperson or shouldn't be. And the smart companies know that. They do, yes, they do. But let's get it right. And I'm going to stick up for Anthony Anarino here, which is this book. If you, said, if you told me who is this targeted towards, this is targeted towards the SME who operates in the Me Too market. I think this is targeted at small to medium enterprise, more small than it is anybody else. You don't feel like this is an enterprise sales Text. No, I don't think this suits the big enterprise organisation at all. I oh, know I don't think it doesn't suit. That's unfair. I think it better suits a small company. And if you're a small company, there's a damn good chance you're head cook and bottle washer, your new business salesman, and then retainer. I think if you were setting up, uh, you know, a recruitment business or a marketing agency or a consultancy to sell, you know, mandates of some kind, and you're, uh, you know, the the MD stroke the sales director stroke everything therein. This is your book. Okay. Would it not be a, pro a good primer for an enterprise sales exec? Uh, a reminder, it's not a, it's not a, a refresher. It's not a bad book for an enterprise sales rep. But, you know, if you had the two circles that overlapped each other, which, you know, I love a good Venn diagram. <laughs> it's and, not and, the first time you mentioned that this afternoon. Yeah, exactly. Um, 
I think that this is a perfect overlap for a, for a smaller company, whereas I think there's a lot of overlap in the enterprise space. Yeah, okay. Is my point. There's some actually some quite valid points in this. So he talks about outcomes, transactions, and mother hens, which I quite liked, actually. I remember now, because it's a while since we've done it. Uh, you might have skipped past it. I'm going to... Well, what page are you on there? So he goes... He, he talks what about... Page you on? I'm on the first page of chapter 12. Oh, outcomes, right, okay. transactions, and mother hens. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So the mother hen sits on her eggs until they hatch. She keeps them warm and she protects them from threats. So we all know a mother hen, don't we? Mm. Everybody knows a mother hen salesperson. Uh, and then there's all the sorts of people that transact. I liked that. I like how he'd split that. Being a mother hen in sales means sitting on your accounts, trying to protect them from harm instead of prospecting and creating new opportunities, doing the real work that retains clients. Where salespeople go wrong is believing that they sold the client a set of outcomes. They own the transactions that produce the outcomes. What does that mean? Consider the following. That's a, that's a, actually, when I read back through it, that was really cool how he explains the difference between a transaction and an outcome. And often, it's interesting, often when you look at those job titles, when you get the specs through, often the customer success managers are often outcome executive. Yes, yes, I, I completely agree with that. Rather than necessarily account manager. And there's becoming a big difference between account management and outcomes. Um, and that, for me, how to retain your dream client. One of the best ways to, to think about this work is the idea of a roadmap. Uh, where are you taking your client? I mean, it's a much bigger topic for me. I like that. If you were to sit down with a pen and a piece of paper right now, drawing 12 quarters across the top of the page, what would you list under those quarters as initiatives that would cause your client to change and create greater value and even more exceptional outcomes for them? That's a cool exercise. Yeah, it is. That's a good exercise. A simple, that. elegant exercise. Really good, that, I thought. Very easy, you know. It, it, you, there's worse starting points, isn't there, oh, with an existing yeah, account? Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, he talks about quarterly business reviews, you know, very obvious, but, you know, absolutely 100% right, I think. Um, and then he talks about, a bit further on than this, page 202, he talks about, goes on about loads of stuff. Does then he goes, this is why it's dangerous to rely, are you relying on that? Exactly yet? the same This chat. is dangerous, right? It's dangerous to rely on a single sponsor who's willing to support you when a potentially adverse event occurs. Yeah. And basically he's talking about pinning all your eggs in one. In on one point of, yeah. And we've all done it, haven't we? No. Yes. Of <laughs> <laughs> we've all done it where we've got that relationship with that guy and no, we've, no. and we've, it's easy to mistake that guy with that account. Yes. So, so actually you and I argue about this is do we have relationships with people or do we have relationships with accounts? Now I've always gone for the former, you know I have. Yeah. But actually, I'm not going to say I'm right. I'm going to say somebody value it. If you were to value the company tomorrow, a value would say, tell us about the accounts. Yeah, correct. 100%. Not the people. Yeah. Because yeah. pe people leave. Mm, mm, mm. You know, I've had one recently where actually it was a great account, but the man left and now it's a shit account and I'm rewinning it. Absolutely. So I thought his point there was very, was very, yeah, very accurate. And then he talks lastly about establishing a cadence and he refers to um, quarterly business reviews. Yeah, the other thing I didn't agree with this was he talks about relationships and intimacy with the client and getting really close. I think if you're a real hunter and a real competitor, it's antithetic to being a true hunter and competitor to get that close in your relationship with the client. Yeah, I don't know, because I'm quite dry actually. How many clients have I got that are friends? 
None. None. And I've dealt with them, a lot of them for 20 years nearly. But you have good working relationships. Working relationships on. I think it's a different but, point, which but is, I think you have a working and a personal relationship. If you're in a new business gig mm. and your business actually gives your accounts over after period X, I think it's antithetic to the type of animal that the companies are hiring to expect them. I think they're, they're mutually exclusive psychological candidate types. But you see, you've hit the nail on the head. If you're a company that hands it over from new business to account management, that's where it suits the enterprise style. That's not where it suits a small Correct. business. Whereas in a small business, you're gonna have to look after your accounts. Yeah, you you're do right. all, don't you? You do yeah. And then we get to uh, talk about cadence. Then parting thoughts, Mike. Do you know what? I thought it was one of the best chapters. Yeah? Yeah, I you know, because I'd say my parting thoughts on the book, and it, it sort of overlaps a little bit here, really, is I think this is a good book and well worth reading. Don't know how much it costs, because I didn't buy it, Lauren did, but <laughs> it was about 10 or £15, pounds, something like that. She didn't buy it with her own money. No, but you know what I mean? So I didn't buy it, is my point, so I don't know how much it costs. I think it's a good book. I think it's a really good book in a meter environment. I think for a SME environment, it, suit, it does suit it, does suit that market very well. Thought so the middle, the middle section was really difficult and actually out balance with the rest of the book. It's just, it's like you're swimming through through clear water, and then all of a sudden somebody changes the tide on you, and you're struggling and didn't realise why. You know, it's very difficult to get into. There's a couple of things really I think with this is, I mean, I look at any book. I was having this argument with somebody the other day about video games. They're saying, "Oh, it's expensive that." I said, hold on a minute, that video game's 40 quid and you'll probably get about 24 to 36 hours of gameplay out of it. Yeah, exactly, yeah. So, 70p an hour. So actually, it's exceptionally low-priced entertainment. Mm. It's mm. cheaper than bloody Netflix, mate. Mm. Um, and in the same way, if you've got the audiobook of this, for example, it'd be about a tenner on Audible or part of your subscription, and it's probably five hours of in-car personal self-development. I don't think you'd want to Audible this. No, because chapter five gets so dense. Mm. Yeah, you'd be all right. if you, you might have to skip back and do chapter five again. But come on, that's a great investment. Yes, I agree. Yeah, it's a good point. A great... If you said to it's me... It's going to make more than it costs you. If, if somebody rang me tomorrow and said, oh, God, I've got to drive from Leeds to Bristol tomorrow to see, an, a, cli see a client. Uh, I'm thinking of an audio book. What would you recommend? I'd say, all right, give it their lunch, you go. Yes, I do agree with that. By the time you've got home, you've read that book cover to cover on Audible, and actually it'll have got you really thinking again about how you're displacing your clients. Mm. So yeah, if you're out on the road next week and you're thinking, what audiobook shall I do today? Because hopefully, obviously, all our audience are people that use, as Zig Ziglar called it, Automobile University. Um, <laughs> I can't remember that, that's funny. It's, that's the Zig Ziglar. Zig always Zig Ziglar? No, I think he's... It's a shame, we could have read one of his books. Uh, uh, yeah. He was the guy. He was the guy, Mike, who had uh, the, cufflinks with the, the cufflinks with arrows facing upwards because the only way is up. I know, yeah, I thought it was funny. Yeah, but I'm I'm down with that kind of zigzaggery stuff. But uh, if, if you are a person that believes in automobile university, obviously, firstly, you should be listening to IRC Book Club. Don't turn us off, or we'll fall out. And secondly, yeah, give this a go. We've really enjoyed it. Next week, we've got Anthony on the show, um, and that I think will really. If you've read this along with us, I hope you have. I hope people are out there getting the book in advance and reading along with us because this is a book club. Oh, we need to tell them what book we're reading next, actually. Yeah, and if you are in a book club, one of the things to do with a book club is to discuss it. So please understand if you're still here, if you're still listening however many minutes into the show, thank you. Secondly, 
you can ring us you can ask questions about the book and we can take calls we've got the toys yeah, but all yeah, you need to do reaches out to us does it mean they're looking for a job and they're going to fire <laughs> and that they're in immediate trouble no but you can drop us an email say listen i want to ask you a question on the show come on ask us we've got the toys and the gadgets to take calls on the show live so humor us anyway next week Anthony yeah, will be on the show Let, and then the week after we're reading this as my five-year-old daughter said the perfect close <laughs> <laughs> or the perfect close right tell us all about the perfect close Mike the first time I've seen it yeah I've not started fact, reading it when Lauren gave it to me I did flip through and think right how big is the writing are there any pictures oh, some big small letters no no no, 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 no. the writing is decent size and there are pictures it's by a man called James Muir yeah who is already booked to well, be a, a guest start, on the show. This is a great start. A professional sales trainer, speaker and coach who has instructed some of the biggest names in technology and healthcare. Right. Well, that's a good start, isn't it? Isn't it just? Yeah, great start. Yeah, and there's some quite great accolades on the back of the book, if I recall correctly. Name one. Who from? Uh, 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 of a top health healthcare software book. Could be one, could be one for my crew. Yes, could be. This one. Read this book, absorb it, and it will change the way you use your craft. Firstly, I like the fact that he uses the word craft. Yes. Uh, and it will change your life. Okay, that's a pretty big one. Ah, I think if it was uh, Selmo, I think, I think your healthcare guys are going to go absolutely crazy watching yeah. out healthcare. Yeah, I've seen these methods used and perfected for over 20 years, and I can tell you this is the real deal. J. Kelly Skeen, VP of sales at Next Gen Healthcare. Good stuff. So James is coming on the show. He's our next guest. And this is his book. It's called The Perfect Close. You can buy it on Tamazon. Uh, it's not expensive. Uh, one of the things I've already fallen in love with about this book is the extensive bibliography at the back, which I like a good bibliography because it takes you down the different rabbit holes of learning. Maybe he's read some other books. Yeah. And it creates a little bit extra credibility. But overall, yeah, we're really looking forward to doing it. Next week, Anthony Anarino is on the show. It will be released on Friday at four o'clock. Tune in. It is an absolute belting, belting issue, both I on it was video. A cracking guest. I just left when we recorded it. I left here buzzing. Yes, we did it on a Saturday. I really didn't want to come in. I didn't I was either. Whining about it. I thought it was an absolute time. And we had an absolute blast yeah, with him. He is parts of the book very well. I think the middle yeah. section, which is a bit heavy going, he explains that very well. Yeah, and it and what was great was he really brought all the content of the book together. Mm, mm, mm. Um, so, in many respects, Keith Rose, having had two guests back to back, they've made me feel sorry for perhaps some of the other authors who haven't been on the show because of the way they've tied the content together and brought yes that's, that's the right word they tied the content they, they tie all the content together so hang in there listen to uh next week or watch it on youtube and we will see you soon remember get to amazon start reading the perfect clothes by james muir we'll see you soon bye